Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Stephen. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Hi, how, how are you, Kenneth? I'm doing good. I I don't know why there's a problem with the Skype on this thing since they they just uh, installed a new switchboard on this. Ah. Um, but we're recording now, I think. So let me do the little blurb. And uh, so, everyone, welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Uh, it is February 8th, Friday, and I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little burp for our website and our book. Our website is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. And, uh, I mean, uh, that's our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We're a free of charge lay let support group for people who want to make any positive change in their habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And tonight our guest is... Stephen Slate, and he's going to tell us a little bit about St. Jude's program in uh, New York City and about his website, The Clean Slate. Stephen, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. I just came home through the snow, and it's very nice. I I like the snow myself. (laughs) Um, Yeah, everything's uh, everything's good. Um, So you're familiar with the program, right? Uh, yeah, well, I'm uh, on the board, so I have familiarity yeah. with the program. <laughs> well, you know, as I, I've gotten more uh, familiar, I guess what I wanted to talk about with you, which I thought would be interesting because, you know, it's really your thing, is really how what we do um, in the St. Jude program is uh, shares the spirit of harm reduction. If that if that makes sense, sense to you, I think that the freedom model philosophy that we that we go by, that is the foundation of of the St. Jude program, uh, is really is really has a lot in common with the attitude and, and spirits of harm reduction. Do you do you agree? I think that's absolutely true. Um, the I mean, when we do harm reduction. Well, let's look at the traditional uh, harm reduction modalities, which are needle exchange programs and the programs associated with them. Um, when people come in for a needle exchange, you know, we want to thank them for bringing in the clean needles. And, you know, we don't try to force them to make changes which they don't want to make or not ready to make. But we try to exactly. encourage them. We encourage them to make changes that they want to make for themselves. And it's such yeah. a different thing you know people you know get uh you know it, after a few times that people come in and get clean needles they often very often want to get more involved and they start asking for more services whereas mm-hmm. if they came in and you said well you can have these needles on condition you do xyz they go back out the door and never come back again yeah yeah so as opposed to that controlling approach and as opposed to just jumping right down somebody's throat and saying hey here's the goal here's what you got to do you got to be absent because what you are doing is bad um mm-hmm. start out the the Jude program and as a, a cbm cbe instructor you're supposed to take this attitude of the freedom model which is that hey people are just doing you know 
what brings them a little bit of happiness, and I know that's that's not totally the the harm reduction. I don't know if that's exactly the same, but but from there, really the attitude is um, they're going to do what they believe um, is going to work for them. So, you know, we say why not let them set their own goals? Don't come in with that judgment that you need abstinence or even that you need moderation or you need this or that. That you're always going to do what you want to do anyways. So let's give you a forum to sort of make the changes that you want and you decide and you, and you set the goal. You set, if you want to moderate, you know, what does that mean? You know, for some people, you know, moderating means, you know, switching a substance. You know, I would get rid of the, oh, I would get rid of the hard drugs and do the marijuana, some people think, or just go to drinking mm-hmm. or less drinks or less of a drink, you know. Um, you, you can't make those decisions for people, you know. You can just offer them um, a forum in which, you know, they can make those decisions for themselves, free of free of the uh, the guilt and somebody else's judgment about it. And and that's probably the wonderful thing about harm reduction. Um, and and people hit this point where it's like, well, nobody's ever, they've never really encountered that situation. You go to a any kind of a counselor, and it's assumed immediately, okay, well, you just got to be abstinent, you know? And, and they jump right over, like, really developing the motivation to change, too. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, I was just going to say, yeah, from uh, a harm reduction perspective, and I'm going to talk from needle exchange perspective for a while. You know, I I also work at Lower East Side, a harm reduction center, which is needle exchange. So I'm, that's my, currently my other job, my paying job. The Hams mm-hmm. Alcohol uh, Harm Reduction is much more of a labor of love. Uh, yeah. But when we do the needle exchange, yeah, we see all levels of drug use from very chaotic drug use to people who are very in control, well, drug and alcohol use. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that only shoot shoot up on weekends. Uh, they have good jobs. They come in, you know, they're wearing suits. You know, you, and you look, and this is not my stereotype that the television taught me to think that a heroin user was like. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's definitely all kinds of uh, <clears throat> of users. And you know what? I think getting that information, just that idea out there that, that the stereotype you know isn't isn't necessarily true is powerful. I was I was reading Drug Set and Setting recently. Have you read that? Um yeah, by, I have uh, Vinberg. Yeah. Yeah, and he talks about all of the the moderate heroin users in it, which, you know, we're told that they don't exist, but he just documents so much information on that. And it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, anyways, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about what we do in, in my uh, New York office. Are you still there? I'm not hearing I'm anything. Here. Okay. Do you hear me? All right. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. There's, there was background noise and there wasn't. So um, basically we've taught, this pro- taught and developed this program um, up at the St. Jude Retreat upstate for uh, over 20 years now. And uh, over the past couple years, we started teaching it to some people over Skype and then opened now this office in New York about uh, a year and a half ago. And um, so it's the same thing that we teach up at the retreat. 
instead of going away for six weeks, um, you come into this office a couple times a week, and you'll do your homework in the workbook uh, and come in, and we discuss, and it's run like a class, but it's one-on-one. And I I think there's been great success with it. I've gotten a lot of great response. Um, Some people, there's been a few people that, um, you know, I've found that the retreat is a, is a better setting for them to do it because what is offered by going away to a retreat. But there's a lot of people that were able to serve this way that, that you know, they wouldn't take six weeks out of their life to go to a retreat. They would probably lose their job if they did so. Even though there's, you know, laws about that, they would probably still lose their job if they did that. So, um And, and, uh, you know, they were able to be motivated enough to make those changes, um, you know, in this kind of a setting. So I'm really happy to be doing it, and I think it it opens up our program to more people who who wouldn't uh, normally come up to the retreat. I'm very happy with it. Well, I think that, you know, in the future, when St. Jude's gets bigger and bigger, uh, that the uh, the day class might really be the way to go on the primary expansion because the one thing there's a lot of research that shows you know on on treatments when you talk and of course St Jude's doesn't use the word treatment but they've studied treatments and compared the inpatient with the outpatient and they didn't really find um, better outcomes for the inpatient it seems like it's only a, a certain number of people a certain segment that really need to do the residential, and I think probably the majority can actually benefit from a day class, a non-residential setting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're probably right that it is probably the majority. Um, like I said, there's some people that going away to a retreat, you know, gives them that big level of commitment to get over the hump because they, they get into this place where there's no drugs or alcohol allowed. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, certainly there's probably more out there that that could benefit from this. Um, and you know what has been a wonderful thing too is that I have had uh, many students in this program that have successfully moved to um, moderate use, which is something you don't directly experience when you're working in the retreat because, you know, the type of place that it is, there are no drugs or alcohol allowed. And um, people go and they live their lives and, you know, you you hear back from them or you don't. And even the research that we did, we never researched the question of moderation. Um, We always researched how many of our uh, program graduates are abstinent. Um, You know, so you know, I didn't have a lot of experience with that, but I've had, um, you know, I've had some students over the past year that, that had meth problems. If you know about, there's a big meth scene in New York. Um, people will use on the weekends, and it's very involved with sex and big meth binges. Um, they decided to cut that out of their lives, but um, we're still... You know, I'll, I'll be all right with, um, they would say, you know, I'll be all right with, uh, I'm, I'm going to smoke a joint if it comes my way. Or I'm not going to stop myself from drinking, you know. And I've had a few that 
did, had that problem, did that, and, and they, previous to me, they were going to CMA, which is Crystal Meth Anonymous. And, um, you know, it's a 12-step group, and there's no tolerance for any other substance use, and it keeps implanting that idea in your mind that if you have a drink, you're going to get back to using the meth. And, um, and I have students that have found out that that isn't so, you know, and that they could drink comfortably. And, and make a decision that I'm not going to use meth anymore. So uh, it's, it's been really wonderful to see that happen for people and to see them come in and, uh, and, and you know, be happy that they've eliminated this thing from their life. And, and it doesn't have to be um, a big deal. The attitude I try to take, you know, I try to uh, take in my classes with people is, is to not make it a big deal for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be scary and there doesn't have to be, you know, this impending relapse, you know, that they don't have to worry about that. We spend a lot of time just talking about, okay, well, you know, what goals do you want to start doing in your life? You know, what do you want to do that makes you happier than using that stuff? You know, and they start developing those activities and and doing different things and and uh and just get wrapped up in new pursuits and and we're not even really thinking about drugs or alcohol that much by the time they're done with the program so um that's been a wonderful new experience to, to deal with people that are that are following a path of moderation to see them go through that. Yeah, there was a certain amount of early research that said that showed a certain number of people that were overcoming heroin um, well, through the therapeutic communities. This is back in the 60s. And when they gave them drinking privileges, um, a certain percentage would uh, really abuse the alcohol. And, you know, that's where the whole thing came from, that you can never use any other substance. But actually, there was a there was a, also a very large percentage that did not abuse uh, the alcohol when they got their drinking privileges. And one thing that mm-hmm. has really, I mean, I thought about it, I would love to see this studied a lot more. It's, pro- it's probably totally taboo to try and study it, or has been. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I think when people... If you try to substitute alcohol directly for your heroin by getting as drunk as possible to get the maximum effect, you're probably going to have a big alcohol problem. Yeah, because you're doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have a total lifestyle change and now, you know, you're with your colleagues at work who on Friday like to go out for a drink and you have one drink with them, you've made a total lifestyle change and your whole attitude change towards the substance is completely different than when you were, say, shooting up the heroin every day. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I'll tell you, I was a heroin user personally, you know, and shooting up the heroin all day, every day. Um, And I went through about four and a half to five years of abstinence. And um, and now for the past five and a half, I guess, years, I've been a moderate drinker. And there is just, I have a, a whole different attitude towards drinking. You know, it, it didn't replace heroin for me. Um, it's, I approach substance use in a different, with a different attitude now. Um, so I drink, I enjoy it, 
and I don't need to do it every day. <laughs> you know, and and it's I drink. I feel like I drink like a normal person. And um, when I, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because we've been talking about it lately because we've been developing some more content on it for the book. And um, you know, but even even when I went when I first drank after being absent all those years, um, I uh, I didn't think too much of it, you know. Um, and I drank on, like, a few special occasions over about a year or two. And then I allowed myself to drink more in, in other social settings and stuff. And there was, you know, first time I drank, like, twice in a month, I thought, oh, my God, and what's happening? Am I becoming an alcoholic? And even so, even after having preached it, like, hey, there's no loss of control for so many years, that thought crept in because you're, we're so exposed to it. And then I had to tell myself, you know, this is nonsense. No, you know, and and uh, it's it, it can be really hard to shake that idea. And and I think what's dangerous is if people do try to, if they try to moderate, but they still really hang on to that belief. Um, I I think it can be trouble. Um, you know, this idea that you're going to set off the domino effect. Um, but. Uh, you know, for me, I I found a way that worked. You know, but but I had to believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I approach drinking differently now. Mm-hmm. And it's also the case. I'm gonna let you expand on this, but you know, not everybody is gonna pursue the path of moderate drinking when they yeah. when they change their behavior. Some people will find abstinence works better. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> there's a case to be made, you know, for, um, you know, heck, if you want, you can make a case for continuing heavy substance use, right? You can mm-hmm. make a case for abstinence, and you can make a case for moderation. And I think the case for abstinence is that it simplifies things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that that's really it. And I think if you feel like you use drugs as as a crutch for, you know, like that life is meaningless without getting high and drunk, um, you might also make the case uh, for abstinence by saying, this gives me, you know, a chance. If, if I go fully abstinent, I get to really, really try to work on enjoying life without a crutch. You know, so there, there's different cases you can make for abstinence, and they're all valid and good. There's a lot of great reasons to be abstinent, and there's great reasons to be moderate, too. And, and like, what's most important, I think, is that people figure that out for themselves and, and not feel as if they're constitutionally one way or the other, but it, it really matters um, on what they believe uh, personally would make them the happiest and work best for them. Mm-hmm. There's about a quarter of the people that come into our harm reduction, alcohol harm reduction program, that decide uh, eventually that abstinence is their best goal. And you know, this is also yeah. kind of a kind of a myth buster. The myth is, you know, if you give people a choice, they'll always choose to drink more. But the reality is, um, you know, people come in and they work on controlling it for a while, and they say, you know, it's easier to quit than to try and control. Um, I don't have any problems at all when I quit. I can't 
really guarantee I won't have any problems when I drink. So, or they'll say it's so hard to, it's so much work to control. It's it's so much easier to quit. Yeah. So quite, mm-hmm. I think um, there's, you know, I've really been looking at this issue of moderation a lot lately, and I think one of the problems that come in when people try to moderate is um, if they still really want to get really really high and they're setting these limits and they're really managing how much they're using, how often they're using, sometimes I think you can spend, you can devote so much mental energy still thinking about drug and alcohol use that it, it, it draws you back fully into it because your mind is just there so much. If you get my drift about this, that you're focusing on like managing it. Okay, I can only have X amount of drinks, and I uh, do it on Friday, and then, you know, you're thinking all week about it, and if it, 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 so much mental energy is, is devoted there, um, it's probably something that's not going to work out so great, you know, which is personally why I think, you know, like the, the path of abstinence for about five years uh, was, was really wonderful for me because I, I learned how to function in, in a fully different way in that time, so that when I did choose to drink, I wasn't managing it at all. You know, I didn't have this dying sort of thirst for drinking at that point. Um, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's one more option that I'm going to mention, which is, uh, well, the harm reduction option, which is actually many options, um, which is what I actually chose to do for myself. Uh, my harm reduction plan for about the past 10 years has been... One night a week, I will drink. I will drink a fifth of whiskey. I'll drink it safely at home. I get totally intoxicated, but then I'm done for the whole week and get abstinence for the next six days. I don't even think about it. And Uh uh, that's a harm reduction plan that uh, can work for some people. You know, for some people, they they say, you know, I don't want to change my drink. I like to drink a lot, but I don't want to drink and drive anymore because it's really stupid and it's really not only dangerous thing to do, but it endangers me because the police are always looking for that. And so I don't want to ever do that again. We say, that's a really good plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, here's the other thing. is Going back to the Freedom Model, the Freedom Model idea underlying the Sanctuary Program, you know, says, hey, let's not make any judgment about drinking or drugging being a good or bad thing. Okay, that's really for the individual to decide. And I think, you know, you go into normal routes of recovery and you, like, demonize the act of of getting high or drunk. Like, oh, my God, that's such a bad thing, you know. And it's not bad. Who who are we to tell somebody and make the decision for them that that it is bad to get drunk? to drink a fifth of whiskey, as you said, you know. Um, that's It's your life, um, and if you enjoy it, what's bad about having fun, you know? Um, if, if it works for you and it fits into what you want to do, then, you know, that's, that's your call to make. And I, I think there's a, this obsession. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, if you break up with the girlfriend, and then you want to talk about, then, you know, so you only want to say, well, why was I ever with her? She was horrible. She was this, that, the other thing. And you're listing off all the bad things. 
and you want to pretend that there was nothing good about her that you ever liked. And I think we kind of take this attitude in a recovery culture and try to do that about drugs and alcohol. You know, for instance, you know, there there's this sort of narrative that people get in the recovery culture that say, I don't even know why I was doing it. I didn't like it at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think I think that that's dishonest. <laughs> I I think it I think it is this it's a real attempt to try to pretend, um, you know, as a way to convince yourself that you shouldn't be doing it anymore. That there was nothing you ever liked about it. If there's nothing people liked about it, they wouldn't be doing it to begin with. Uh, well, I also I think that uh, it's really dangerous to not acknowledge the good aspects of drinking and also the negative aspects of, you know, of quitting or whatever your recovery plan is. You know, we talk about doing the cost-benefit analysis, the decisional balance sheet, the standard four, where you write out the good things about the way you drink now, the bad things about the way you drink now, the good things about the change you want to make, the bad things about the change you want to make, so you're aware of everything. Because when you push something into your subconscious, it just pops out. And that's what makes people relapse and not follow through with their plans is that they're repressing all these things. Yeah, um, you got to be realistic about what's going on, and I think um, you listen. The only reason anybody ever goes to get some kind of help with one of these problems is is if you ask them, you know, why did you know why do you want to quit? Why do you want to change? What do you want? Why do you want to do this? Well, you know, I'm getting DUI or my spouse is mad at me or I feel like I'm going to die, you know, I I do cocaine and uh, my heart's beating, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. They list all of these problems. You never go in and and say, I want to quit drinking or drugs because it's bad. You know, you you Mm -hmm. list these problems. So, but what ends up happening is, is, is we fetishize abstinence. And and we focus on the drugs and alcohol when really it's the problem you want to get rid of. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's good to stay focused on what are the like you said what are the costs and the benefits uh, like you like you do like you're doing smart recovery I even do that with my students what are the costs and the benefits let's not fetishize abstinence or the recovery lifestyle let's just talk about what choices will get you the kind of and quality of happiness that you want in your life, you know, and will get rid of the problem. Um, and that, that's also, that's, I think, the harm reduction spirit is let's get rid of problems. Let's not be hung up on you better be abstinent or else, you know. Focus on you changing whatever's problematic for you. Absolutely. And the other thing I see is when people, you know, repress these things and they're repressing their desire to drink, that's why they get locked into going to meetings for the rest of their lives because that's the only thing that's stopping them instead of, you know, getting a balanced, you know, a balanced mind, a balanced life. And, you know, it's one thing when you recognize what's good about drinking, you can say, well, drinking helps me relax. And you can say, oh, wait, there's other ways to relax. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
right? But so, but we want to skip over that and pretend, uh, oh, there was nothing I ever liked about it. It's so bad, for, you know. But you know, some of you, they put the cart before the horse uh, and, and assume like you better stop because it's obvious that there's all these bad things. But yeah, let's acknowledge those good things. And like you said, you might find a solution. You might say, oh, there's other ways I can relax. There certainly is, right? There's a lot of ways to relax. Mm-hmm. Every benefit that you get from a drug or an alcohol or alcohol, you can get somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say that, you know, recreational drug or alcohol use might not be a good thing in in mm-hmm. its place, in the right time and place, but, you know, not all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's there's a thing, there's a metaphor in the book, or an analogy, I guess, um, about a roller coaster in, in the St. Jude program. And, uh, and I really like it because it's like, you know, look, using drugs or alcohol is like, you know, riding a roller coaster. You know, it's it's fun. You probably wouldn't, you know, ride a roller coaster all day every day. You know, it's fun. It doesn't mean there's anything bad about it. There's, just like there's nothing bad about a roller coaster. You know, but um, is it, it? It does it provide you everything? that you want, you know, and just take the, the good or bad judgment about drugs uh, and alcohol out of the equation and, and and recognize that it's just a simple pleasure. I think that that's important. Now you know, you say, this is, this is, go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is, this is what, you know, a lot of the recovery world kind of doesn't want to acknowledge for some reason. Um, you know, I don't know exactly why. But, but what were you going to say? I was going to say, um, well, St. Jude program doesn't call problematic drug or alcohol use. They don't call it a disease. I don't call it that either. Hams is kind of neutral. People can call it what they want. But uh, so why why do you not call it a disease? Um, well, because I think. Well, the, the disease thing, first of all, I'll tell you, I don't think it's accurate. And I have a million ways I could explain that, but that would be a big, long conversation. I don't think it's really a disease. So, first of all, it's just wrong. Um, but uh, but second of all, practically, um, the disease idea carries with it the notion that, that you can't control it. It is some you have something that's causing a biological sort of imperative for you to use drugs and alcohol. And um, it takes it away from purpose. And it actually, I think it creates the very idea that I brought up before, this, uh, where people say, I don't even know why I used it. I didn't even enjoy it. You know, It becomes completely divorced from purpose. If there's this disease causing you, and it doesn't matter that you like it because it relaxes you. You would never consider that because it's just it's a disease, you know. The disease process is automatically happening. And, and so you divorce it from purpose. Um, and you also tell people that they can't control themselves. Um, so they're doing, uh, they're engaging in behavior and saying, I don't know why I do this. 
once you once you bring in the disease concept, and they get more lost uh, than ever. And you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, the disease thing doesn't really mean all that." You know, I went to Bill Moyers and his son speak last night, and it was it was it was moderated by Susan Cheever, and they talked about the disease and the illness and how it takes over and how you can't control yourself like constant nonstop throughout this thing. Um, it's, I, I think that that's dangerous thinking, personally. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's fundamentally problematic because it makes you look for something outside yourself to fix you the go. disease. You're searching yeah. there for the magic pill, the magic treatment program, the magic support group that's going to that's going to cure you or that's going to keep you in remittance from your disease instead of saying, "Wait a minute, this is a behavior I do. It's a conscious behavior. I want to change it and, you know, what resources can I find in myself to change it?" And uh, well, in the end, I think you know the classic disease model keeps people dependent for life on their AA meetings, instead of you know getting over the problem, getting a life, and moving on. Yeah, well, th- th- that's exactly it, and it, it, you're looking for something that isn't there. Nothing outside of yourself is going to change it. Um, but we're hoping that. Oh, a pill can do it, a recovery group can do it, a treatment center can do it. You know, and that's the first thing when people come in to see me, and maybe this isn't the best way to get them to sign up for the program. <laughs> but I tell them, you don't need me to change, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't need me, and you don't need a, a 12-step group, and, and you don't need treatment. You don't need, the only thing you might need, if you're really using a lot of, of some, say, a prescription drug or alcohol, uh, is detoxification. You know, but other than that, you know, the change is going to come from within. Um, And the way that I, you know, try to explain it sometimes, um, you know, the people that go to AA and they're successful in AA and they love it and they're big, um, you know, supporters of it, those people enjoy the AA recovery lifestyle more than they enjoy heavy drinking, you know. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all it comes down to. They like their friends that they have there. They like going to the meetings. They like the spiritual ideas and every, everything that's involved, right? They like mm-hmm. that more than they like drinking. But I think there are an infinite possibility of life paths and activities that you may like more than heavy drinking and drug use and once you commit to looking for them and following those things um, then uh, you know you will also get over your drinking and drug problem and there's so there's also infinite ways to do that but it's got to come from within and, and you have to look and open your eyes to other things and but the, but the analogy that I use is, is if I got this old crummy Dell desktop Right, computer, mm-hmm. and um, and if you know, should I uh, go st- go start looking at an Apple uh, MacBook, and I save up to buy that, and I use it? I'm, oh my God, I'm never going to want to go back to using that gel again. And and I think that that's what that is what happens essentially when people you know um, 
decide to drop the heavy drinking drug use and go look for something else, when they find something better, they, they never go back, you know, that that style of, of drinking and drug use. And, and so how do you, we have a way to help people to try to do that, you know, with CBE and option presentation, which are parts of, of uh, the food program. But, you know, I, I don't think anybody needs us. People figure this out on their own all the time. I think we've got a really great focused way that they can do that. Well, I think what you and I do is give people information and tools to make the changes themselves. If they were on their own, they might be spending the next 10 years stumbling around until they found the way to change themselves. But, you know, if you if you have the right information and the right tools, you can do this much more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. We're giving them some tools and information in a forum where they can talk about it without – like that if they say, I, I think I can change, you know, somebody isn't saying back to them, no, you can't. You're in denial. <laughs> you know? um, we give them a forum where somebody believes in them, you know. And, uh, you know, I think, that, I think that that's huge. And you talk about information. I mean, I, I'll tell you flat out, the most important thing anybody ever told me was when I went to the St. Jude program after five years of, of you know, different treatment programs and just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, somebody saying, hey, you don't have a disease. You are in control. And you're doing this because it makes you happy. That's all there is to it. And you'd be happier other ways. What an amazing piece of information that was for me. I finally changed. Somebody presented me with that. So that's, I, you know, I have a real passion for it because I, I know that, that I know what an effect that that can have for somebody to, because I fought it before I got into the treatment system. You know, I fought it myself. And um, and then I was taught to believe all this other stuff, but but it resonated with me. No, you're not out of control. It's all right, you know. Other people do this all the time. They make this change. And, and you know, it's up to you if you want to do it. And, and I was like, thank you. I'm not crazy. Here we go. I'm going to make a change. Yeah, because I felt crazy when they were telling me, you're out of control because I, I specifically had a, before I went to my first counselor, I had an episode of, of getting uh, completely abstinent from heroin for three months as an experiment to myself. Say, am I in control of this or not? And I did. I, 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 I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I am in control of this. I stopped using. And uh, then I went back to using and I told this, this counselor about that. The first counselor I saw he said, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. I said, yeah, I did. You know? And he said, well, no, you, you couldn't. It's impossible to quit heroin on your own. Like, I did. And I'm not trying to tell you I'm, so, I'm sober now. But I did um, do that. And, um, I, you know, this, I went back to it because it makes me happy. You know, I like to do it. It makes me happy. And I wish somebody at that point in my life would have said, well, let's start you know, brainstorming, what else might make you happy and, and does this work for you? I would have loved if somebody would have said that to me, but instead he said, well, no, you did. You definitely didn't do that. You must have been using fake heroin. <laughs> Literally, I, I kid you not, he told me I was using fake heroin. That was because that was the only way I could stop <laughs> because it's impossible to stop using heroin on your own. I got in a big fight with him about him telling me that I had a disease and was out of control. 
Um, you know, but then eventually I, I, I went in that system for several years and began to believe it. It's just so nice for somebody to tell me, no, you're not out of control. You can stop, so, you know, if you want. Well, that just reminds me, you know, when uh, they were telling me, you know, alcoholism is a progressive disease and you can only always drink more. And then, you know, I and I did cut back hugely and I was told, well, I was told, you're not allowed to do that, first of all. And second of all, that proves that you're sicker than everybody else. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> it's a catch-22, you know. Um <laughs> If you're if you if you are if you say you're not in control, great, you're not in control. You have the disease, and be powerless with us. And and if you say you do have some control, and you would like to do something different, you're in denial, and you're with us. You have the you have the disease, and you're gonna struggle forever. It's really a crummy little situation there. <laughs> well, it's unfortunate that the standard. I mean, the the standard old-fashioned rehab up to now. The treatment, the goal has been not really even to stop drinking. The goal has been to have people attending AA meetings for the rest of their lives. And, you know, once you're attending, it's okay if you relapse, you know, as long as you come back with your tail between your legs, you know, very <laughs> contrite and say, I relapsed, I'm out yeah. of control, I'm diseased, and by the whole theology of AA, um, but they're the in recovery. Of, yeah, but the whole goal of the treatments. That I went to was wasn't even to abstain. It was to have the people that graduated from the treatment become AA members and, and you know attend for the rest of their life. Yeah, and and uh, that's unfortunate. You know that this idea, this notion of living up to like doing being in recovery and rec- recovery having almost nothing to do with substance use. <laughs> but having to do with, you know, are you doing the steps and going to meetings and all of that, and then you're in recovery. And, and if if you're not, even if you've never had a drink in 20 years, you're a you're this bad thing, this dry drunk. You know, it's it's really strange. It's it's, it's they've completely uh, turned upside down. Um, you know what people are trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> and and replaced it with this other goal of following this recovery lifestyle. I'm trying to get rid of problems in my life. I'm I'm not trying to get a religion, you know, um, or a new social uh, uh, fraternity to be in. Um, although some people are looking for that. You know? Now, for me, I was born into a really strong fundamentalist Christian family, uh, you know, they were creationists, all this crazy stuff. I uh, thought everybody was going to hell. Um, and, you know, the the minute I stepped into AA, it's like, oh, my God, I've returned to the hell that I was born into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of people have that experience, I know. I know, I know, I know. I, I don't know what... Uh... I mean, that's just a constant issue. I'm, I'm lucky I didn't have too many bad experiences with religion in my life, but unfortunately I was pretty much an atheist going into it. And so it was very, I'm like, why am I on this issue? Why am I on whether I believe in God or not? Why, why is whether I change dependent on that? So it's such an obstacle. Um, yeah, why are they telling you that your brain is your own worst enemy? <laughs> 
that you yeah. shouldn't think log you should not think logically. Logic is bad. You it's it's kind of believe like a sheep. Yeah, it's it's tough. Um you know, which is you know what is a wonderful thing to the evolution of uh the Saint Jude program. Um you know, just to let you know a little bit you, well, you probably, you know, you already know this, but, uh, you know, they were very uh, AA at first. Uh, mm-hmm. These were guys that, you know, were like fundamentalist AA. And they started to question a few things and change a few things and said, wow, it works better if we do this. And, and everybody said, shut up. You know, because it's, you know, it's like editing the Bible, you know, or changing the word mm-hmm. for the Bible. And they questioned more and more and more and changed more and more and then just finally just really developed their completely own thing. Um, And there was still some of that religious stuff, that religious AA stuff in it when I went. Um, But the choice message, you have a choice, you don't have a disease, was so powerful where, you know, I was completely, um, you know, battling on religion in my other sort of uh, recovery attempt, uh, you know, I was willing to overlook that stuff. Um, it was in the St. Jude program, some of the spiritual stuff. Um, and over the years, they've changed that, and they've really realized, you know, nobody has to believe in God to uh, do this. <laughs> you know, they were willing to question that, even though, you know... Um, of, of a lot of the people that you know are involved in in, in the program from way back are, are very religious and very spiritual, but mm-hmm. I said there's no reason I need to push this on other people, and I think that's been an amazing growth in the program to get you know to really evolve uh, that way. And if that's something people want, then go find it. You know, just like anything else in life, it doesn't have to be a condition of <laughs> getting sober. Yeah, it's kind of irrelevant to uh, stopping drinking or, you know, getting over a bad drug or drinking habit. It's like saying, you know, you can only recover if you vote Republican. You know, it's irrelevant. Yeah, 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 exactly. It it, it is irrelevant. It's it's really a non sequitur to to put uh, God into the equation like that. I I certainly, you know, have never understood it. Um, But but I guess, you know, um, AA set the tone for that and really dominated the growth of the the entire um, concept of addiction and alcoholism and rehabs and everything so that we all think that it's a a, a necessary part of things, but it's not. Uh, and it really presents an obstacle to a lot of people. Well, it's kind of funny. Before I went into treatment, I thought AA was a group where people got together and discussed strategies to stay away from alcohol. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's actually a forbidden topic because that would make you powerful over alcohol if you could have a strategy to stay away from it. You have to surrender to God and say, you know, AA has saved my life. These meetings have saved my life. If it weren't for these, I would be out there drinking right now. And that's your only recourse. You can't say, oh, I thought up a good idea not to drink. You know, I'm going to do this instead. And it's like, 
Well, you're not allowed to think up ideas not to drink. Yeah, you don't have that power, you know. And when I when I saw William Moyers, uh, who is with Hazelden, and we did that talk last night with with Bill Moyers, um, <clears throat> you know, he said this is the hierarchy. You know, up top it is God. That's the most powerful thing. The next most powerful thing under that is my disease. And then below that is me. And I have to remember that. That I can't, that the disease is higher and more powerful than me. And then above that is, is my higher power, God. You know, they, they clearly set it up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so thinking that, that you, you know, you're not supposed to be able to think that you could do something to change in that scenario. You need the higher power, whatever it is. As you were saying before, something outside of yourself. Now, have you seen there's a new book coming out? It came out yesterday, I think. It's called Inside Rehab. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. Oh, it's written by a friend of mine, Ann Fletcher. It looks to be really interesting. Um, I, I talked to her. We interviewed her on the show a year, like a year ago, and she was talking about writing this book, and she was going to look at what what goes on in rehab, but it looks like the final product came out a little different than what she was talking about then because she says, you know, a lot of these rehabs are based on pure garbage and there's no science to them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I would love to check it out. Have you have you gotten to look at any of it yet? I just ordered it today. I just, uh, it was released for publication yesterday for sale. Um, so I just ordered it today. I'm I'm waiting. There's a bunch of articles out about it right now in the press. So I'm yeah. waiting for my copy to come on Tuesday. <clears throat> well, I'll I'll look it up myself. I hope they have it on Kindle because that's what I stay pretty exclusive to now. It <laughs> it is on Kindle. I ordered it from I I ordered the hardcover <laughs> from Amazon because I like the paper books still. But I saw the Kindle edition is out too, so it's on Kindle. That's great. I'll have to check it out. Um, I, 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 you know, eat up this stuff. I, I'm constantly, you know, reading all this stuff and want to see what what people say. But yeah, there's this big, um, you know, you really think you're going to get treatment? I mean, it, they should be put in jail just for using that word. You know, if you if we have any kind of a lawful society and any kind of any kind of regulation at all, to use the word treatment and then sell people religion is uh, an abomination. I mean, that's just that's just downright criminal to do that. And and if you go to these places, they're not using they're not using. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not some medically proven thing. Nor is, nor is the disease even really scientifically proven at all. I, I, again, that's a big that's a big argument that takes a while to get through. <laughs> but, um, it's, uh, and what do I want to say about it? Go ahead. Well. If you had cancer, I mean, you really are powerless over cancer. You just can't sit there with willpower, make your tumor stop growing, you know. But yeah. if your doctor sent you to, you know, sent you to a twelve-step meeting and said you have to admit you're powerless over your cancer and ask a higher power to cure it because 
God can do anything, I mean, he would be sued for malpractice. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. And, and there's all this. Uh, you know what? I was I was telling you by email. I saw your your article about where you said AA is not CBT because <laughs> I had just heard that one too many times and sort of uh, finally it was like the last straw and I was going to write something about it for my blog, thecleanslate.org, uh, last week. I thought that you did a really great job with it um, because CB, there's so much, there's actual research on CBT um, and it's proven to be very effective um, and it, to have like what they call this sleeper effect where, um, you know, you might put somebody in a treatment for depression um, and they could be in some sort of psychoanalysis or they could do... Um, like a antidepressant medication therapy, or they could do CBT, and and all of them at the time that people are undergoing those treatments, they're all getting equal success rate. But then when you check in two years later, the people that did the CBT are still going strong, and a lot of the people that did the other ones are not. You know, so it has this long-lasting effect. And there, there's there's a lot of research on that. And so what they've done now is they've tried to sort of reverse justify AA as a form of CBT. And then in the process, they AA is a is a evidence based treatment. And people will say we use evidence based treatments here um, at this <laughs> rehab, and they're that they're doing AA. <laughs> and it's not the same thing, you know. And and really, I I when they say that they are using CBT with, with people in in treatment centers, you know, I I shudder to think of what it is when when I read some of the manuals that like NIDA puts out, some other organizations. So you read about um, relapse prevention and. Um, a lot of it is almost kind of the opposite of what, you know, you would, if you really looked at CBT and wanted to apply it to help people with substance use problems, you probably wouldn't do, you know, some of the things that they actually do with it, which is they promote negative beliefs and tell people that they are not, really, if you look at, like, you know, Albert Ellis' system of, of REBT, the form of, form of uh, CBT, he talks about rational and irrational beliefs, you know, and and there's a lot of irrational beliefs that you're taught um, in treatment programs, and as part of things that they call CBT, I think it's kind of crazy, where, where in, you know, real forms of CBT, they're trying to get you to ditch irrational beliefs and find beliefs that are more rational. Well, we're going to have to shut the show down. We've been on for almost an hour. Did you realize that? Oh, um, I guess we're, yeah, we're right at the end, huh? Yep, yep. Um, but I want to mention one thing before you leave, and I understand that uh, next week you're going to be on Monica's Safe Recovery Show? Yeah, um, I'm going to be doing that show on the 12th. 
So I want everybody to tune in and listen to uh, Steve Slate. I'm Monica. She's a friend of mine on Safe Recovery on Blog Talk Radio. Make sure you listen to that. And thanks for being our guest tonight, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, Ken. It was great uh, talking with you. Okay, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Night. Good night.